0: Mm -hmm. Hello. I'm Angus Scrim. Some time ago, word reached me that a gifted young filmmaker with whom I'd worked previously had a role for me in a new film. I would play an alien, he said, and that was all he was going to tell me about it for the moment. My mind raced with the dramatic possibilities. An eager immigrant from the old country, meeting the struggles, the heartbreaks but the eventual triumphs in the land of opportunity, America. Would I play an Irishman, a Russian, a Chinese? I'd have to master the appropriate accent. Maybe I'd speak initially in another language. Yo hablo un poquito espanol. Je parle français un peu. Pompu, de pasarte, net noy crop. The young filmmaker was Don Cascarelli the role he offered me was an alien indeed a sinister tall man from another dimension who plundered small town America's graveyards for dead bodies to be shipped back to his world as slaves he didn't speak with an accent about all he ever said was boy now by means of this latest entertainment incarnation phantasm is here for your enjoyment and no. But as you watch, the tall man will be watching with you. Just behind you there, in the shadows.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 15 of the Faculty of Horror. This is one of your hosts, Andrea Subisati. I'm not sure where Alex is. She's, uh, I guess, running a little late. But, um, hey, we've got a timeline to stick to, so I'm just going to start. I'd like to thank everyone for letting us know about our difficulties with iTunes. That was something that got pretty tricky for me, and I had to work out, and I was on the phone with iTunes support, I was emailing with iTunes support, and it looks like we've got it figured out now, so please do try to get us through iTunes and let us know if there's any problem with that. I think I've got all the kinks out, so thank you very much to all our fans who tested and who helped me solve it on Twitter. So today, what we wanted to talk about was, Alex and I discussed in advance that we wanted to get into a film that lives really... F- Boy! Boy! Oh my god, Alex, you scared me. Jeez, you're, what are you, like, seven feet tall?
2: God, Andrea, I'm wearing heels. Did you, did you start without me?
1: No, of course not. I I was just waiting for you, and my god, you scared me. Were
2: you talking about iTunes? No, we need that, like, seal of professionalism. No, it never happened. Just, Jesus Christ, Andrea, pull it together. Okay, Hi everyone and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror. This is uh, episode 15 and we are podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. This is your first host, Alex West. Why are you the first host now? (laughs) Well, I'm like a host. Today we wanted to talk to you about something which we hadn't really planned on but due to recent horror news we felt like it would be a really great time to talk about it and that is Don Coscarelli's two films, Phantasm and Phantasm Two.
0: Phantasm Is it a nightmare? Phantasm Is it an illusion? Is it an evil?
3: You have to take me home. What? No questions. You must take me home.
0: Phantasm. Is it a fantasy? Doesn't scare you, you're already dead, Phantasm.
1: So the horror news that Alex is talking about is the release of Phantasm 5, which had a trailer that was leaked online and people were just freaking the hell out all over my Facebook, all over my Twitter, which was kind of interesting to me because, first of all, it's uh, it's been a long time. Phantasm came out in 79, and Phantasm 2 came out in 1988, and here we are in 2014 with Phantasm 5, and Phantasm 3 and 4 were kind of direct-to-video. We've seen this happen a billion times in horror before, just these lesser-known, lesser-loved sequels that went straight to video and were forgotten, so it's interesting that Phantasm 5 is getting the full theatrical release, and people are just so excited, so we thought it'd be a really good time to kind of take a look back at Phantasm 1. One and 2, and why they are so near and dear to horror fans' hearts.
2: One of the things I thought was really interesting about the Phantasm 5 trailer that went online is that no one expected it. It kind of popped out right out of the blue. Uh, and I already made this joke, but just like the Beyoncé album, it happened and people went, oh my god, it's the sequel I didn't really know I needed, but maybe always wanted. I think that's actually a really great thing that they were able to do it on the DL. They didn't have to promote it. There wasn't Kickstarters or a lot of hype surrounding, you know, the first stills that came out. It was just like, we made the movie, here's the trailer, we're going to get back to you with release dates. And I thought that was really great because I think in our culture now, where it's so mediatized and we all have access to this information all the time, we start to form opinions, we start to, you know, really start to hang on to certain ideas from a really early place with a lot of these films. And it can kind of take away the magic a bit. And I like that this team of Coscarelli and Reggie Bannister and Angus Scrim, you know, who've been a part of all of the films were able to go do this on their own, and hopefully they made their purest vision, which I think is the strongest part of this series, is it always kind of feels like it's coming from a really real place. Whether you like it or not, they feel like really earnest films that were, I think, pretty much fully realized as best they could be.
1: Yeah, I feel the same way. And I think for Alex and I, we were talking a bit about how interesting the reaction to the Phantasm 5 trailer was and how the film's didn't really affect us in a huge way. You know, we knew that they were very important to certain horror fans. We knew that they secured a very important role in modern horror. Phantasm has been credited as being very influential to the slasher genre. And so we thought it was a good time to take a look.
2: Now, Andrea and I actually saw Phantasm Two together at last year's Festival of Fear, and we had a great time. That might have been because we were just coming from Banjara with Stuart Feedback Andrews and Last Chance Lance and Mike White from the Projection Booth. And so we had a couple beers and, you know, we were having a really good time and it was a really fun audience. And Don Coscarelli was there and he spoke and he speaks with such passion and affection for these films that it's kind of hard not to feel the same way as him. And then going back after we decided to do this episode, I always thought I'd seen Phantasm But I don't think I had, so it was kind of interesting going back as an adult and watching the second one again, and then as well the first one, and they feel like movies that really exist and and play for a child, which was a really strange thing to come to as an adult. That's
1: right. I remember meeting Don Coscarelli. I remember watching his panel at the Festival of Fear and kind of strolling through Fan Expo. We were on our way back to the Rue Morgue booth, and he is just a big kid. He is the sweetest man. He's always got a big smile on his face and the joy with which he speaks about his films. He's just like a kid in the candy shop.
2: And what's interesting about Phantasm, well, as we'll get to, one of the many, many interesting things about Phantasm is that it was generally really well-reviewed when it came out. A lot of the critics identified problems with it, but overall a lot of the critics seemed to get that it was a lot of fun, a lot of passion, and it was actually really inventive and helped move the genre forward. Now, one of the reviews that I thought was really interesting was one by Vincent Camby, who's the critic for the New York Times. And to paraphrase, he said that phantasm kind of plays out like a kid telling you a ghost story, and they're really excited about it, but it kind of meanders, and then they realize they have to go back and re-explain something, and then a plot line gets dropped, but that's okay, because we're just going to keep moving forward to the big climax of the film, and then it ends really quickly. That's right. So
1: now here we are. I'm tasked with summarizing Phantasm. And if you listen to our podcast regularly, you know that this already isn't my favorite thing to do. It's harder than it seems. And it's especially difficult with this film, which is essentially uh, a child's nightmare. But basically, what we have is a young boy by the name of Mike. And his parents recently died. And so his brother, Jody, who had moved to the big city to kind of pursue a rock star life, has come back to the small sleepy town to take care of Mike, but Mike is pretty insecure about Jody. He's got abandonment issues. He's worried that Jody is going to ditch him and go back off to the city, which, you know, Jody essentially tells someone that he has every intention of doing. So Mike visits a psychic and he also reveals that he has nightmares about this figure, the tall man, this man that he's encountered. In these nightmares about the mausoleum where his parents were kept, and mausoleums—they're a creepy place. I'm talking the big stone-walled things where basically your ashes are stuck in a drawer. My grandfather's in one of those, and I remember going in. I was like, "This is so much creepier than a grave site." I don't know why. I don't know if it's because it's—it's more modern and it seems more economical to just honeycomb the corpses in instead of taking up real estate.
2: It's also, I think, because it's closed in like a big house. So, you know, it's not like in something like Night of the Living Dead, when you're in the middle of a graveyard, you can kind of, you know, make just a run for it. It's not an easy run, but you can run. In a mausoleum, I feel like you're more trapped, it's more contained.
1: That's right. And it's also a very sterile environment with this white, shiny marble, as opposed to a graveyard where you're in nature and you can kind of have that feeling of returning to the earth and whatever. But I digress, not unlike the film. Basically, Mike is having these nightmares about the tall man and he starts to see him in real life. And so he goes to the mausoleum to check it out. He has an encounter with the tall man where he manages to take a couple of his fingers and he sticks one of them in a box. And so when he goes to tell Jody that there's something weird about the tall man, he's got wonderful evidence and Jody believes him right away.
3: Okay, I believe you.
1: So... Mike and Jody team up with their family friend, Reggie, to get to the bottom of everything. And I'm not going to get into the specifics of, you wait here, I'm going to check out the funeral home, and then there's a car chase, and a crash, and this and that. But basically, they discover that the tall man is taking corpses, compressing them, sticking them into canisters, and selling them in another dimension, or another planet, as slaves. Now, eventually, Mike believes that he's defeated the tall man and wakes up to find himself with Reggie being told that Jody had actually died and that he's got to get on with his life. But the the film ends with the tall man pulling him through a mirror in a really cool scene. And so, yeah, none of that made sense. Of course, we're going to make sense of it as best we can in Faculty of Horror fashion. But I think that's about it.
2: There's a really interesting website and an interesting order, which actually just got a mention on the Rue Morgue podcast, one of their more recent episodes, and it's The Order of the Good Death. Now, for anyone who's a listener of that podcast, you know that Lance is a mortician, and that comes up, and, you know, we've all thought that was very interesting. And so when I checked out this website, theorderofthegooddeath.com, They have a lot of videos, and it's actually a really well-curated site. And some of the earlier videos really deal with the history of embalming and the mortician practice. Now, I thought this was really interesting, having watched the movies and then watching these short videos, is that there was a movement... Obviously, the whole movement of the industry of death and making it peaceful or making it happy or making it all these different things and then the rise of cremation. But there was a really interesting movement in the 1980s, and that was all these mom and pop funeral homes were being bought out they were all being taken over by this conglomerate who wanted to make the process faster and cheaper so they would kind of farm out the process of embalming and and all of that so that it actually happened off-site. So you had this nice facade of like this mom and pop and usually they would keep the original employees on for that sense of consistency. But really, there was something much more sinister and more financial going on in the background. So I thought it was interesting that this all takes place in a small town called Morningside and all of these creepy things are happening in this funeral home and as Andrea just mentioned those are creepy enough at best and then when you have this you know notion that it's a small town and the town mortician is actually an interplanetary or interdimensional alien figure that takes on a really strange presence within the movie
1: now death and the rituals in which north americans deal with death is a really prominent theme in this film, and um, I, I think we're going to get into that a little bit later, but as Alex mentioned, you can definitely see the influence of industrialization on death. it became more streamlined, it became more efficient and less personal, and you know for the most part, people went with it because North America is a very death denying culture, and so we 're kind of happy to be like, "You know what? You take care of it and send me the bill, and the bills get bigger, and the facades get glossier for the most part, we don't know what happens to our loved ones after they're taken behind the curtain. And for the most part, we're okay with that. My first exposure to death as an industry was, um I was in like grade five. And you know how you'd have a reader, which was basically a compilation of all these stories and chapters and stuff. And there was this one chapter that we didn't actually even cover in class, but I was such a keener. And I was so morbidly fascinated by the topic that I read it on my own. And it was about embalming of the ancient Egyptians and all the tools they used to remove the organs how the organs were put in their own little canisters that were shaped like the animals that represented where these organs were going and I specifically remember they had a picture of the instrument that they used to take your brain out through your nose so like as a young not even horror fan yet a horror fan to be I was fascinated by this and I thought it was so cool
2: at first, they would cut small holes inside the head of the individual and they would basically scoop out the brain with a spoon. That method wasn't very effective, and that's when the embalmers invented this quintessential tool known as the brain hook. This is simply a metal hook. Uh, it was usually made out of copper or bronze, and the small hooking end of the of the brain hook would then be shoved up the nose of the individual and they would break the ethmoid bone here then it would be twirled around in circles until the entire brain became like this mushy jelloy liquid and they would yank it out through the nose and throw it away see i remember having a really strong fear of death i think through all the movies i watched i remember very specifically terminator of all films because I was always really worried something would happen to my parents. I have aunts and uncles, but they're, you know, all over the world. So it was really just me and my parents. And the idea that something would happen to one of them and destabilize my life, I felt very keenly aware of. Again, I was a very nervous, sensitive child (laughs) who, like, stayed indoors a lot. So that probably didn't help. And it's interesting the way it changes because, you know, I think as a child, and, and the way Andrea was just mentioning with this industry of death, it's a lot about creating a story and creating a narrative so that we can all kind of say, okay, We're doing the right thing and that you would say to a child like no they're they're going on to a better place and they still exist on some plane and they're still somewhere else but it's all good and now as an adult I'd like to think that the people who love me will miss me when I go but I don't want to have to like hang around and comfort them I want to like chill that's what I want
1: I want to haunt some shit
2: what would you haunt? Oh,
1: an insane asylum or an orphanage or you know, someone really vulnerable. Maybe you. <laughs> oh,
2: no. No, you'd be so scary, you'd pinch me.
1: You're probably going to die before me anyway. You're so tall. <laughs> so what Alex is talking about is coming from the fact that in North America we live in a very death-defying society. Cultures can either be death-accepting, death-denying, or death defying. And in the West, we have a history of going from a collectivist culture to increased individualization. And that's largely responsible for our shift from death defying to death denying. And I'm going to get into that a little bit now. But looking back in history, you've got the Black Plague. The Black Plague just decimated the population, and people did not know why. People speculated that this was a curse from God, people speculated all kinds of things, there were crusades, there was whatever the fuck, but more or less this was people's first real confrontation with the idea that maybe we should shut our door and not hang out with the neighbours quite so much. This was kind of the start of people getting a little bit more private socially and the weakening of traditional ties, it coincided with that historically. And then we've got the Enlightenment era, which brought secularization into the mix. A lot of us are still kind of brought up with religious views of salvation. And after the Enlightenment era, it's not as mainstream and universally accepted, but it is still a fairy tale that we tell children. Gone to a better place and heaven and hell, and we're kind of brought up with this, which is death defying. You don't actually die. You move along. And that's comforting to us. But the Enlightenment era kind of shook that up a little bit. That, no, actually, we are animals and matter and we turn to dirt and we rot. And then we've got the Victorian era, which really romanticized death, especially the process of grieving. You know, it was almost a fashion statement. You got to wear all the black and have the veil. And, like, let's face it, the Victorian era, you were probably married to somebody that your family told you to marry. And if they died, what the hell?
2: And they were also probably your cousin.
1: So then in the mid-1900s, we moved to a new privatized and institutionalized death industry, which is what really cemented death denial and avoidance in our culture. For the West, our immortality is basically in what we leave in the world. And so our death anxiety is just kind of like, what have I done for myself? What do I have to show for this life that I've lived? Have I made my mark on the world? Whereas in collectivist societies, they were just like, you were a good citizen. Good for you. In, in Hindu cultures, there's you know the belief in reincarnation. And in Buddhism, it's even more interesting because to achieve enlightenment is to kind of break the cycle of life. Is what you want to do is get away from the earth and all the suffering inherent in it. So just to put it in perspective that North Americans tend to want to separate themselves from death because it frightens us.
2: There's been some really interesting writing I've found over the past couple of years about how we exist in social media after we die. And how do you close an account of someone who you love? Because you have to, you know, you have to do all the bank stuff. You have to do all the taxes and all these kind of other things. But then there's this kind of lingering, like, Facebook or Twitter presence. And I have some friends who very unfortunately and very sadly passed away. But they still have Facebook accounts. And it's, like, on their birthday or the anniversary of their death, I'll see, you know, someone post to them. And it's some of the strangest posts on Facebook that you can read and I mean you know we have a lot of strange friends but these kind of I think really take the cake and I, I think now we're grappling with our mediatized self in a really strange way and I'd like to think that when I go which as Andrea reminds me will be soon you know I'll leave my Facebook account to her and she'll be able to post things from me from beyond the grave.
1: Ouija board. Who's Captain Howdy?
2: You know I
3: make the questions and he does the answers.
2: Oh, Captain Honey. Yeah. Nice. Now we've talked about this idea of the female gaze in this podcast before. So I think it's really important to consider what we've touched on already is that this is really through a singular gaze. Phantasm is told through the singular gaze of Michael, our child protagonist. So that's why, at the end, we have to kind of take everything with a grain of salt. And, you know, when you have an adult telling you, well, that was all made up, we're just going to try and do the best as our own little fractured, strange family now. But we really have to consider that everything we are experiencing is through Michael's eyes. We very rarely get an intimate portrait of any of the other characters other than what they mean to Michael.
3: I'm really scared about something that I did. I was messing around up at Morningside Cemetery, and I saw something. Something really scary.
2: That really feeds into the notion of why Michael would fight death so much and, and you know, create these elaborate scenarios of teaming up with his brother and fighting it and being a team. That's very important to him and not being left behind. Having that experience, that shared experience, which really binds you together. And the notion that what the adults are saying, what they keep saying, is totally wrong. And the experience of the tall man in this you know, creepy, creepy funeral home only serves to further cement the idea that our notion of death is actually wrong. And that it's not that you either, A, go to a better place, or B, you just kind of cease to exist. It's like, no, you're turned into a freaky dwarf who attacks people, and then you're shipped to slave labor. Like, that, that is a really frightening thing, and we've actually touched on that in our fourth episode, Do You Like Scary Movies? And that's one of the perennial fears that we always deal with as a person, is that loss of autonomy, the fear that we will have the same base that we have now but we won't be ourselves or we'll exist in some kind of small corner of that existence. That's
1: right. And it's all a huge lie. And this child Mike is just kind of about at the age where he's learning to be able to call bullshit. For example, when Jody tells him, yeah, no, I'll uh, look after you for a bit. He knows that Jody is going to cart him off to his aunts because he says so to the psychic. It's Jody again. I found out that he's leaving. Other themes that come out in this movie, you know, we've got his confrontation with death. There's a lot of independence and manhood and role models that come up. And it's very much a coming of age tale for Michael, who is starting to call bullshit and demanding to be heard and listened to and believed by these older men in his life that he idolizes Now, I'd like to add that the first time I saw Phantasm 1 and 2 was I had started dating somebody and he was like, you're a horror fan and you haven't seen Phantasm and fuck do I hate when people say that to me. God help me if I ever say that to someone else. So it was a really happy relationship. I think I've said that to you before about (laughs) a thing or two maybe. Anyway, so we sit down to watch it and I watch it and I'm like, what? the hell does he love about this movie? And another huge fan of this film is my friend Tal Zimmerman. And he is, again, about the same age as my now ex. And I just came to realize that this is a film that hits you hard when you're about Michael's age. This was a fantasy horror film that delved into all these insecurities. And in the end, you know, Michael was right. He gets people to believe him insofar as he keeps insisting that the tall man exists and everybody keeps denying it. He was right at the end and he conquers it all. And Coscarelli himself even admits that it's a time of life thing. Phantasm is held very dear to young male horror
2: fans who watched it in their prime because they could really relate with Michael. I think that also feeds into the fear of aging, which Michael, being young and pure, is able to see these things and tap into them really easily and readily. Jody eventually gets there. Reggie just kind of falls into it and is like, all right, I'm hot as love. And the real fear stems from the tall man, who is this freaky, gaunt, interestingly haircutted, gentleman figure and even at the moment when Michael is left in the pawn shop or the antique store and he sees that moving image of the tall man from you know a hundred years ago there's that fear of history and that things have always been kind of wrong so the petulance of youth kind of wins out to a certain degree oh
1: yeah and when he feels that nobody's listening to him he goes to a psychic which is just kind of anyone who's ever been to a therapist, you know that it kind of feels like you're paying someone to be your friend. You're, you're paying someone to listen to you and not judge you. And as a child, you're not going to get that from an adult. And it's not the kind of understanding and guidance you want from a peer, someone your own age. So I thought it was really interesting, the myths we tell children to deal with their fear. You know, Alex is fond of quoting the Nightmare on Elm Street a dage about how, go ahead.
2: Oh, well, if something's going wrong, you just ignore it, and then it explodes into sparkles.
1: Right. And in The Shining, you know, Dick Halloran told Danny, just close your eyes, and it's just like pictures in a book. You know, we have all these metaphors and coping mechanisms telling
2: children how to deal with fear. And I think that's actually really interesting, because so often we tell children to suppress and negate, but phantasm is a full realization of a child's fantasy and their own neuroses. And as the sequels will, for better or worse explain to us, actually rightly so That scene, that Dune-inspired
1: scene where he's at the psychic's place and they tell him to put his hand in a box Put your hand in the box
3: What's in it? Just put your hand in the black box Okay, but what's in it? Hey, this thing really hurts don't fear, Michael. I
1: can't get my hand out. Don't fear. Give me back my hand. Don't fear. That's kind of a device that he uses later to vanquish the tall man, and it kind of shows that myth in praxis.
2: Now, one of my favorite characters in Phantasm is the lady who appears in and out of the film, and she doesn't really have a name, but she's been referred to as the Lady in Lavender. And there is some really strange moments with her. She opens the film, actually, having sex with Jody and Reggie's friend, Tommy, and they have some really weird sex. I've never done it like that, but she's, like, double-jointed, but, you know, more power to you. I also really like how that scene opens, where this woman and Tommy are having sex in the graveyard, and then it basically cuts to Tommy's funeral. So you got to think that someone found him in the graveyard dead with no pants and underwear on and stabbed like a really sexy Elliot Smith. But basically, you know, she she serves as this kind of siren, this uh, femme fatale kind of character throughout the film. And at one point tries to do the same thing to Jody, which Michael disrupts. And inadvertently stops Jody from suffering the same fate as Tommy. Now, what's interesting about this figure of the woman is that she combines two things that Michael doesn't understand fully yet, which is death and sex. Does she have any lines? Yeah, she has, like, no lines. She serves just to tempt men and screw them until she kills them. And those are two things that would serve to take Jody away from Michael. So either the very final death of Jody, which would end that relationship entirely, or Jody perhaps falling in love and having a romantic relationship or a more intimate relationship with someone that isn't his brother. Because you shouldn't have intimate relationships with your siblings. We get asked that a lot. You know, the one female figure that pops up in any meaningful way, and she's a very static figure within the film, but she does serve as this weird kind of signpost of masculinity, and that masculinity in adulthood is really something to fear and be wary of. Or that femininity is something to be wary of. Femininity
1: is like the ultimate deceit my impression in watching the film i actually interpreted the woman as uh as the tall man in another form
2: i thought of her as a separate character but they're definitely in cahoots mm-hmm. because when they're killing tommy they kind of stand together at one point they? maybe okay this whole thing still feels like a dream i could totally be wrong about this entire film
1: absolutely i feel like i could watch this again and again and still not know, know what the <laughs> fuck is going on And another strange loose end is I have in my notes here, there's a whole paragraph entitled WTF. And it's just like, you know, why are you shrinking the dwarves? Why are they? There's some mention that the changed gravity in the other dimension is responsible for that or better suited to these different proportions. Slaves. What? Slaves. Don't use them
3: for slaves. The dwarves. And they got to crush them. Because of the gravity and the
2: heat. There's definitely something kind of freaky. I I like the dichotomy of having the monster of the film be the tall man and having him be a very tall, imposing figure and then having his minions be these tiny things. And I was reading a bit about the production of this film and they were really children who were in those cloaks. So the idea of having children being thrown around in all these fight scenes is pretty fucking funny. And it was also amazing that they look so much like the Jawa in Star Wars. Which apparently was a total accident, which I totally believe. I think it goes into that, which we've talked about in our Scariest Movie episode, is that sense of the uncanny. Is that it is like a human figure from far away, but from how tiny and how malicious they are, it's totally unreal and totally unsettling. So I think that takes us to the 1988 film Phantasm II.
0: Phantasm, the delusion of a disordered mind, a phantom, a spirit, a ghost. For 10 years, the secret of Perigord Cemetery has remained a mystery. Now... Three innocent people are about to discover the ultimate evil. You think that when you die, you go to heaven? Mm. You come to us? To warn people. Phantasm 2.
3: It's only a dream. It's a dream.
0: No, it's not.
2: So, this film was also directed by Don Coscarelli, and there's a really great feeling of consistency to this film as much as films like these can have consistency. Obviously this is when Universal, I believe it was got involved and fronted the money for it and they really wanted to cash in so Coscarelli had to play the game a little bit so you have that sense that it was a bit more streamlined a bit more focused and there wasn't that ambiguity to the horror there wasn't that is it all in Michael's head, is it real, you know there wasn't that tension to it. There was a more streamlined and full vision of this world but it still managed to be really fucking crazy so phantasm 2 picks up exactly when phantasm left off so you have michael being pulled into the mirror and then breaking away and reggie hearing all this commotion he's downstairs in this house he hears all the commotion runs upstairs and manages to kill a bunch of these little minion figures and then he and michael escape it's also a very interesting moment because there's kind of a couple scenes in that opening where the tall man is just like wandering around the house and he's much less imposing when he's just like walking down a hallway. Then it picks up several years later and Michael is I guess 18 or 19 and it's him in a file interview in a mental institution and the doctor is saying, "So you know, this was all fake, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera.
3: Be well, Michael. And remember, it was all in your imagination.
2: So Michael leaves, and Reggie, as a faithful sidekick, is right there to pick him up. And Reggie's so excited because he can finally introduce Michael to his family. And what happens when they're driving up to Reggie's house? Well, it explodes. Reggie has a couple moments of freaking out, and then they decide to arm themselves to the gills and hunt the tall man. Throughout all of this, we're introduced to another character, a young woman named Liz. She and Michael seem to be psychically connected. They're both already in love. And they're both kind of searching for each other, and they understand the other one is in peril, and that they're both kind of haunted by this figure of the tall man. So through their travels of searching for the tall man, they go to a town called Paragord, and this is the suggestion of a young hitchhiker whom they pick up, who also happens to be extraordinarily beautiful, very game for things, and really into bald guys. So, hey, Reggie, what's up? And in Perigord, they find Liz. Now, Liz is dealing with her own problems. Her grandfather has just passed away, and her grandmother's not doing so great. So Liz is really dealing with the after effects of death and the kind of impending death of her elderly grandmother. Now, after her grandfather passes away, and he's kind of being put into the process of the morticians and this and that and the other, the tall man enters her life and essentially takes not only her grandfather, but also her grandmother. So now Liz's life is at stake after she's abandoned by her sister. The tall man attacks Liz. Liz escapes, finds Michael, and they proceed to immediately be in love, because yes. And and then Michael, Liz, Reggie, and the kind of other girl are trying to team up together. The other girl kind of fucks off And then it's up to the threesome to defeat the tall man and break free of his hold. Now, they try this again and again. Eventually, they feel like they finally defeated him by throwing one of these silver balls at him and plunging him with the embalming fluid that they use on these things, and it explodes the tall man, and they all escape in the car, and they're picked up by the hitchhiker, and, you know, everyone's really happy, until the hitchhiker is actually revealed to be the tall man, wearing the hitchhiker's skin, or was actually always the hitchhiker and the film ends really interestingly and really parallels the first film where they're in this getaway car the tall man takes over he's driving away and liz and michael are in the back and michael is trying to comfort liz by saying it's just a dream it's just a dream it's not real only to have the screen go down and the tall man say no
1: it's not yeah the hitchhiker's name was actually alchemy what and let me tell you i've puzzled over this shit for like preparing for this podcast i was like i'm gonna figure it out if anyone's gonna figure it out it's gonna be all hell bad here her name is alchemy alchemy is the science of turning things into gold what in the fucking fuck and i have come up with absolutely nothing so if anyone out there has a theory as to why alchemy is alchemy i have
2: a theory she was a really big hudson hawk fan
1: that's a terrible theory and i hate it
2: there are no terrible theories in brainstorming
1: Anyway, Phantasm Two, for the most part, takes place nearly 10 years later. And for my part, I thought it's really told from Reggie's point of view, all of a sudden, is Reggie is kind of doing the narrator, he's got voiceovers on a lot of the scenes. And if you think about it, if you think about what we talked about for the original Phantasm, where the original fans of Phantasm were maybe Michael's age and really related to him, 10 years later, they're probably closer to Reggie's age, and they give... You know, less fucks about autonomy and insecurity and death and stuff. And they care a bit more about guns and getting laid. And Phantasm Two is very much the bigger and badder version of Phantasm. It reeks of 80s horror and action flicks. And to me, it's just... There was pressure from the studio to avoid the dream sequences, to avoid some of the ambiguity, and to cast a new Mike. And a lot of fans felt a bit betrayed by this, which, again, just speaks to how effective the original character of Mike was in the first film. But to me, this film is kind of an example of how a little bit of studio interference can really be a good thing, because it is really fun. It has all of the tenants of the original phantasm what makes the original phantasm great is all present and it's just in a bit more digestible form a little bit more humor a little bit more pervy dude humor Red,
3: this girl's in my dreams except when she's in them she's dead i think for her sake she shouldn't get involved with us Well, your dreams always come true no, not exactly, but pretty damn close. Shit, Mike, have you looked at her? You know, we've been out here a long time. And besides, it gets hard on the road. Red, you're thinking with your wrong head.
1: You've got these weapons, you've got these guns. I love that hardware scene montage where they're basically crafting their own weapons of mass destruction. I think one of our favorite
2: writers in genre film, a writer named John Kenneth Muir. He writes a lot about how the 80s, and in particular, James Cameron's Aliens, really helped revolutionize these kinds of films where, you know, a sequel became about, well, the individual tried to fight it in the original, but in the sequel then it's time to bring in the gun power. And a lot of times that meant the army, but in this case it means the two characters who went through all the events of the first film really understanding what they're up against and not being naive about it and just being like, all right, shit's still happening, it's going down, let's get all of the weapons. And they do.
3: Bridge. long guns are no good. It's gonna work it has got to work at close range.
1: So there's a lot of similar themes from the original Phantasm. We're still dealing with death as externalized by the tall man, except now he's kind of a traveling roadshow. He's going from town to town and just wiping them out. I really got the sense in the first film that he just kind of stayed in his Mm -hmm. funeral home, and there was people who died of natural causes, and that's cool, but then there's also the lady in Lavender that was bringing him younger corpses to turn into his dwarves or whatever whereas this is just on a much larger scale and they're actually hunting him but i think the most important addition to phantasm 2 is the character of liz
3: i don't know where he comes from maybe another dimension his army of creatures he destroys towns and plunders their graveyards to enslave the dead Each day I can feel him coming closer. He knows I see him. And we've both seen what he can do.
2: So Liz, intentionally, and I think also unintentionally, adds a lot to this film. While in Phantasm One we were discovering this world and the mission of the tall man through Michael's eyes, in this film, indirectly, we're experiencing it through Liz's. Now, in a lot of analysis on fairy tales and folklore there's a real movement to talk about the maiden or the damsel if you will now this character is kind of an instigator in her story but for a lot of the story she's quite dormant she's either ineffectual asleep poisoned something like that so she doesn't have a real agency now in this film it's the psychic connection of liz to both the tall man and to michael that helps all these elements come together and forces the final fight now liz has these kind of amazing powers and she's very psychic and you know thankfully she's so psychic that her and michael have already fallen in love
1: Yeah, their romance is so bizarre. There's this montage where she's basically going through her diary and she's narrating. I've been having these dreams. Michael.
3: I love you. Your lips aren't moving. We're dreaming. Wow. This is great. different mike that's why he wants us so we're the only ones who can see what he's doing i prayed so hard that you'd find me but you did i love you
1: and then all of a sudden there's michael and i'm just obviously i can't relate i don't have a psychic cell in my body but it's just There's this guy you're seeing in your nightmares, and he's your savior. Sure, you're grateful, but the love aspect thin at best. But I felt like that sequence was, again, kind of just a teenage boy fantasy. Mm -hmm. So when you're teenagers, you develop these
2: crushes based on
1: absolutely nothing.
2: But I thought it was a really interesting female take on that kind of fantasy because it really is purely about romantic love. It's not about a sexual love. There's a really interesting sequence in the film when four of them meet up and they're finally all in the house together and they all have like a night to go get some rest. And Michael and Liz literally just go to sleep and it cuts to a scene of them sleeping and you know they're matching high-waisted jeans and then they have like this psychic conversation where they say they're in love with each other meanwhile it's intercutting with Reggie and Alchemy having this like weird unfulfilling sex where Alchemy's really into it but Reggie who's like this older not so attractive guy being like oh this is weird there are ladies out there who really do like the bald guys God, Ridge. I love your head. So it's a really interesting negation of the narrator and the person who's kind of the impetus for a lot of these things happening and coming together. But she really doesn't have much to do after that. She kind of sits on the sidelines and is attacked and she's captured and then she's uh, freed and then she's captured again and she's about to be killed. And then it gives the men a really great heroic moment where they can go in and save her. Now, as I was mentioning with this, the history of folklore, fairy tales and the analysis of it, There were a lot of these stories that were about strong women, and a lot of them deal with really fucked up subject matter, such as rape, incest, murder, poisoning, and the women actually, through various means and in really interesting ways, come out on top. However, these stories have been kind of negated because, you know, it's our... Word of the day, is always on Faculty of Horror, patriarchy. So (laughs) you have the Brothers Grimm and Hans Christian Andersen, who wrote their own stories and cherry-picked stories that were about men and these beautiful women, and they kind of served the social quota of women as nurturers and mothers and lovers, and the men went off and had adventures. So these were the stories that, through popularity and through constant production, became the norm, and they became the social acceptability, Whereas these other stories have always existed just below the surface. So I feel like there's a really interesting unspoken tension within Phantasm too, where Liz is so important and so integral to the plot, but is just in a dream state throughout most of this film. And just as she is in a dream state, like Michael is in a dream state within the first film, the themes and the worries about Phantasm too have a lot to do with a young woman's progression into life. So the fears are also loss of loved ones, death, but they also have to do with finding your soulmate and sexuality and being respected within a relationship. And those are all things that are really paramount in the relationship of Mike and Liz and are less paramount and more tawdry in the half-assed relationship of Reggie and Alchemy. Liz doesn't have much of a role
1: insofar as she is the device that seems to motivate Mike and Reggie. I mean, they should both be motivated by vengeance, right? They know that the tall man is responsible for the demise of both of their entire families. It's never really clear how much of a family Reggie has, although he says something about kind of having a daughter who's excited to meet Uncle Mike.
3: Dinner's waiting for you. Aunt Martha came down and Celeste baked a turkey. And, you know, little Bonnie, she just can't wait to meet her Uncle Mike. She's been talking about it all day.
1: He's a liar. He might be a liar. Who knows? But it seems like Mike's main motivation is to save Liz and she calls out to him and... Uh, Reggie, who has nothing really to live for after the death of his family, is just kind of along for the adventure and along for the ride, and he wants to be a rock star and shoot a big gun and be on the road for a bit and bang hitchhikers. It's exciting. But Liz, what I found interesting about Liz, it was in the opening scene where Liz is in a position very much like Mike, where she has access to this mausoleum, which is very similar to Mike's. You know, it has the big marble hallways that I described before, and she was walking through them. We hear her heels click and echo through. It's very dramatic. It's very sterile and very stony, and we get that same sense again. But Liz has a different role in the death of her grandfather than Mike does. In the first film, it's all about Mike. It's, are you okay? Poor tough little guy. Is he going to be all right? Who's going to take care of him? Nobody's worried who's going to take care of Liz. Everybody's worried about the grandmother, and it falls to Liz and her sister Jerry to take care of the grandmother. And when Jerry tells Liz that she can't stay in town, she has to take off and get back to her own family, there's a guilt trip. And that is really my experience with death, is you don't so much mourn your loss as you cope with the changed circumstances. And I think that's partly a coping mechanism and partially the role of women in the family.
2: Yeah, it often falls to the youngest child and definitely the youngest female child, certainly in what I've seen in my life, to any elderly adults who are in need. I mean, my parents are both still able-bodied, but I've already put them into a home and they barely noticed. One of the things I really love about both of these films is the similar note that they both end on, but as similar as they are, they're actually... Pretty different so in the first film you have Michael being pulled into a mirror by the tall man and that's our cue as an audience to believe that holy shit Michael was right all along that dream world that fantasy world was real and our fears are real and the tall man is real and he's gonna come and get us and I'm sure that led to a lot of sleepless sleepovers now in the second film you have a car speeding away Reggie who's become a really great ally in these films bloody and beaten and screaming outside of a car and Mike and Liz trapped in the back of this hearse and Mike is saying to Liz trying to calm her down it's just a dream it's just a dream and you know it's that kind of full circle to Michael's adulthood. He's accepted that weird fantasy of death is not real. This is all just a game. This is all something else. We are actually safe. We are fine. And then, of course, the last moment where the tall man is still in control, it's that horrific reminder of now the characters who we've become so invested in have now lost that sight. They were willing to believe that they were safe, but of course they're not. You can't get away from
1: death. And that's the underlying impression that both the films leave us with. And what I think is most special about these films is that I told you a little bit about my exposure to these films is that the two biggest fans I know of these films are dudes in their mid-30s. Coscarelli himself admits that it's kind of a coming-of-age film for horror fans of this generation, and it's something they hold really dear. Now, I had seen both films and was... Underwhelmed by them, but when I was told that Phantasm 2 would be screening with Don Coscarelli at the Festival of Fear, I was stoked. And Alex, like you and I, we went to see it together and we were both like, man, sweet, Phantasm 2 was so good. And then we sat there and we were like, ah, shit, it's actually kind of not. It's a movie that I prefer to remember than to watch, which is really interesting to me. And I feel like it really harkens back to the dreamlike quality where our memories are kind of fragmented with the specifics, but we remember the feelings that we had in our dreams. We remember things that scared us or inspired us or made us laugh, and Phantasm executes that just
2: so well. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think these movies have their faults, and they're not perfect, but the overall memory and the dream quality adds so much to them, and I think that speaks a lot to what Coscarelli's instincts are is that he had a very limited budget for the first one. He had to basically do everything himself, along with his cast and his really fragmented crew. And then, kind of like Evil Dead 2, they had more of a budget. They had, you know, actually a lot of the same special effects crew on set. And they were able to pull more off... But it's never going to be an easy ride. So the fact that he was able to create such memorable images, such memorable sequences, you know, an amazing antagonist in the figure of the tall man. And while I was watching these films, you know, the idea that a bunch of dwarves are in another dimension, that's not scary. But when I think about something being done to me after I'm supposed to have died, That's really fucking scary. That's a really weird twist on what we hope. It it even goes further than zombies. The fact that there are these brainless things that happen around and attack random people. These are little people who will do the will of this tall man. You know, that's, I think, actually more terrifying than a zombie.
1: It's true. And while we may never encounter all these slave dwarves and their Tall Man creator, we are going to encounter death and we're going to encounter death of our close loved ones and I think people who grew up with this film are maybe going to associate this situation with death, you know, when you're going to the funeral home, how everything is kind of glossy and you've got this soft spoken man in somber black comforting you and you've got your loved one all sewn shut and pumped full of formaldehyde in front of you and it's this grotesque reenactment of your loved one in front of you. I mean, certainly when I was a young child and I read that about Egyptian embalming, I had kind of made the decision right then and there that I would be cremated if that. In addition to North America being a death denying culture, they also have very specific ideas of what should and shouldn't be done with your bodies. As profane as death has become, there is still a sacred element to remains. It's kept in an urn and it's kept high
2: above and it's something that needs to be respected. I see you dying in a fiery blaze of glory. One can only hope. I think there's a lot to be said for our fear of death and I think that fear of death is really beautifully explored in Phantasm and I think What Phantasm Two is really trying for, and I think on some level succeeds at, is our need to keep rationalizing it and that at the end we will all face the same harsh truth.
1: So that's episode 15, everyone. We want to thank you once again for joining us and for bearing with us through our technical difficulties, moving from Podomatic to our own website. It's growing pains. It has to happen, just like Mike. You know, the testicles have to descend and our voices change. But we're in a better place now and
2: able to continue podcasting within our budget. And we're happy to be doing that. I just wanted to do a couple quick plugs. I was recently a guest on Rewatchability. They are friends of ours, uh, another fellow podcast, and I was on an episode to talk about Reign of Fire, which is a movie from 2002 starring Matthew McConaughey, Christian Bale, and a whole bunch of dragons. So if you're interested, definitely check them out. It's Rewatchability.com. And appearance that I mentioned a couple months ago... Should be hitting the airwaves right about now as a guest on the Rumor Podcast. I went solo this time, and I took on the formidable Stuart Feedback Andrews in an episode of the Horror Court. Now, this is actually important, so if you're interested, please go listen, because I am defending Wes Craven's 1996 film, Scream, and he is prosecuting it, and it is up to all the listeners to be the judge, jury, and executioner, so go find that podcast, listen to it, and then you can actually cast your vote of guilty or not guilty against Scream on the Rue blog, so be sure to check out all the links and find it there. All right, are you done? Are you done begging for
1: votes? God, Alex just desperately needs people to tell her that she's right, and so vote for her, because maybe it'll take some of that off my plate. In a related announcement, The Black Museum, which is my horror lecture series, Alex did a lecture earlier this year, and it is now available for download. So if you come to blackmuseum.com, you can download her lecture on The New French Extremity. And it's like five bucks or something. And if you can't get enough of her voice, that's yet another way to support her and also to support the Black Museum. For those of you who aren't lucky enough to live in Toronto, the horror capital of the world. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I'd like to take this opportunity to address a number of issues that have circulated in the media over the last few days. That I use crack cocaine. I do not use crack cocaine. I am an addict of crack cocaine and i love crack cocaine i will continue to use crack cocaine every day and it's business as usual at city hall
2: from me andrea and the formidable tall man office hours are closed
3: You know what time? i